So last week, an old acquaintance of mine reached out to me. Uh, he's a guy I hung out with a bit when I was uh, in Bali. And a good guy, cool guy. I liked him. Pretty cool, other than this one thing, which was I had introduced him to a good female friend of mine who was also in Bali, and he developed this uncomfortable, unrequited crush on her. And it wasn't like he was hitting on her or being lewd or anything like that. It was actually, in a sense, worse. Like, he thought for sure that they were destined to be together. He even went as far to say, as in a plant medicine ceremony, he got this clear vision that the love of his life would be introduced to him in a certain way, and it kind of matched up with the way I introduced them, and he thought for sure that this was the love of his life. She wasn't. She isn't. She didn't like him. Uh, so, of course, it creeped her out, right? Like, in his mind, it was probably a very romantic thing, or, or maybe he just was sure of himself. You know, I think most women, if they already liked a guy, and he said he had a vision that they were going to be together forever, that maybe can be endearing or romantic in that context. But if a woman doesn't like a guy and he says that, it's just creepy. And, you know, that happened. I didn't think much of it, however many years ago it was. But then recently he reached out to me and I hadn't spoken to him in a long time. And he asked for the contact of my friend, which was like, I mean, of course it made me cringe. Uh, but because he was a good guy in every other way I did, you know, I did reach out to my friend and I asked, even though I knew she was going to say no. And I wanted to do, uh, at least go that far for him. And of course, you know, she and I ended up talking about it because now she was extra creeped out. Now it's years later and he's still in some way pining or holding on to some delusion, or I don't even know what he really wanted to communicate to her, but something about it is, is, uh, uncomfortable. And I think most women and many men would find it at least cringy this whole thing. But then looking at it from his perspective, or going a little deeper, I did realize that I can relate to this. And I think many men, if they really think about it and go into it, can relate to this kind of deluded fantasy feeling. It maybe has been a long time uh, since a man, you know, an adult man has felt something like this. And maybe you've never gone this far. But I think most people actually have experienced some, have had some experience of unrequited love that maybe developed into fantasy. Chances are, you know, this is something that happened to you in early adolescence or maybe in childhood. And whether it's creepy or endearing is kind of a matter of perspective, right? For an adult man to be feeling this way, it's, it is kind of weird. But, you know, I've said some version of the story many times on the podcast and how one of the major catalysts for my own growth was this uh, huge heartbreak I had at the relatively young age of 15, uh, you know, where I was in a totally deluded fantasy crush on a female friend of mine. I got publicly rejected and it was kind of this cause of, uh, it was this catalyst. It, it put me so deep into pain that it forced me to learn, uh, change my behavior, right? And, and I could look back on it and put a positive spin on it, you know, even my wife today would probably be glad I experienced that heartache back then because then it led me to uh, the behaviors I have now. But back then it was creepy, right? There's no way around it, right? To the to the woman that I asked out, uh, to the people who were in the audience in my high school, it was creepy. It was or at, least, at least cringy on some level. So it is kind of a matter of perspective. And we could go even further back, right? I, I go back to my earliest emotionally charged memory. Uh, at least in this field, uh, when I was five, 
I had also, uh, I mean, I had many crushes and I'm going to share some embarrassing moments for the, for educational purposes in this episode. But, you know, I've had many delusional crushes in my life. And one of the first ones I can remember is when I was five, I had this mad crush on my kindergarten teacher's assistant. I don't know why. <laughs> I can't remember why. I can kind of remember what she looked like. She was a grown woman, kind of pretty. I don't know why I was so obsessed with her. Uh, but I was. Maybe she was nice to me on like the first day of kindergarten. I created some attachment. I, I'm not sure. And we look back at this and we like, oh, that's kind of cute. You know, five-year-old has a crush on the teacher. <laughs> but if I share with you the details of what I fantasized about as a five-year-old even, it's not that it's not that innocent. It's not that cute anymore. I don't even know how I came up with these images because I didn't know what sex was, but I definitely imagined things that... Uh, maybe would make this less of a cute story, right? But what all of this points to is that while there's a, you know, we could have different opinions on these kinds of situations, these delusional crushes, these fantasies, they point to something that I think is a, a key stage in male psychology, whether it happens at childhood or in adulthood or somewhere in between, which is that of the boyhood wound. I'll define the boyhood wound as, or boyhood wounds as incomplete emotional cycles that then, if left incomplete, affect adult behaviors. And it's kind of like chicken pox, right? Like it, it, there's almost no way out of it. You know, there's no way to avoid it. But it's much better to deal with it when you're very young and then you, you heal from it and then it doesn't affect you ever again. Whereas if somehow you go up until adulthood without addressing this wound, without this uh, need being completed, it can be deadly. <laughs> it can be really bad. and you know, in, in this case, we're speaking about heartache, but it, it affects, I think, all of the male needs. And in this episode, we're going to be speaking about the various kinds of boyhood wounds, the incomplete needs that can affect an adult man, if not addressed, uh, that for love, but that also for expression and for power. In this episode, I'm going to take some of a, I, an attachment theory perspective on how these are natural drives, natural needs. And if they're not addressed when you're young, they can at least become a, a persisting fantasy. And if that gets even further, um, it can become a delusion or a pathology or some of the weird things. And these three drives for love, for power, for expression, they're natural drives. They're healthy drives. And it's only when they're not fulfilled do they become wounds which lead to undesired behavior. So if you're a man who feels his behavior is affected by some old woundings, or if you're close to a man who's affected in such a way, this episode will be useful to you. Uh, we're going to look at some maybe extreme versions of these pains. I'm going to share some embarrassing stories from my own life because now yeah, who better to embarrass than myself? I'll give some other examples of other people I know as well. And with the goal of finding ways to heal these wounds so that they don't affect our behavior in these important areas of love, power, and expression. This is episode 151, Boyhood Wounds. One of my favorite movies and the last movie I've seen in theaters, and I actually saw it twice. It's the only movie I've seen in theaters in the last many years is the Joker movie with Joaquin Phoenix. And I love it so much because other than being a kind of a psycho thriller, which is my 
or a psychologically deep movie, which is my thing, uh, it really displays what we're talking about here, boyhood wounds. Because if you haven't seen the movie, sorry, there's some spoilers. Basically, the premise, though, is that the man who eventually becomes the Joker is essentially an, an incel who is enmeshed by his mother, he's shit on by society, and perhaps is mentally unbalanced as well. But I actually think, you know, such men exist even without, you know, chemical imbalances of their brain, or, or those imbalances occur because of lifestyle factors. But one, one thing that I think they did so well in, in humanizing this type of man, of which, of course, there's so many of them in, in society, especially nowadays, is that they showed his innocence. Because he does, he becomes a, eventually, you know, the Joker, a violent criminal. He's also a stalker, which, of course, is a very taboo and not accepted role, we can say, or activity in society. But they, they humanize him so well in showing his innocence and how he really is acting through incomplete parts of his childhood. And, and they show this through his recurring fantasies. One, the one that's most uncomfortable and relates to the story that I opened with is that he develops this delusional... Actually, he goes into this whole fantasy relationship with his neighbor who barely even knows who he is, right? And you see all these scenes where, you know, they're not, they're not sexual fantasies. They're not, you know, aggressive fantasies. They're, they're really innocent. Like he has this whole relationship in his head with his female neighbor who doesn't know who he is, where they're kind of, you know, just going to the diner for a date or she comes to his comedy show and he makes her laugh. And they're very innocent fantasies. But there are delusion, right? It all happens in his head. And there's a moment towards later in the movie where he gets confused between his fantasies and reality and walks into her apartment and obviously she gets upset. But another fantasy he has, which I think is very common for a lot of people, is the fantasy of expression. That was the fantasy of love, of course. The fantasy of expression is where you know, he often watches The Tonight Show or their version of The Tonight Show in the movie uh, where the host is played by Robert De Niro and the Joker imagines being on the couch and being interviewed. And a lot of people have this fantasy. Raise your hand if you've imagined being interviewed by some talk show host or something. Or actually, you know, I've mentioned this a few times in the podcast. A lot of guys I speak to when they share what they think about is they imagine talking to Joe Rogan in their heads. And I'm one of these people. And I'm going to speak more about that uh, later in the episode, that, that embarrassing thing, um, where obviously it's some desire. We can say desire for fame, but the wound, I would say, is a desire to be heard, right? All of these things come from a feeling of lack. Someone who's listened to as much as they want or someone who has as much love in their life as they want is probably not going to have these, have the corresponding fantasy. And the final one, the final fantasy he has is that of power, right? He imagines, uh, you know, because in real life, he's basically bullied by everyone, by his coworkers, by even kids on the street bully him, uh, even though he's an adult man. Um, and he has fantasies of basically standing up to bullies and killing them, right? He has one kind of sick, innocent fantasy where he imagines himself dancing and he's holding a pistol that he just got, a real pistol that he just got, and he imagines someone being mean to him and he shoots them, <laughs> right? And then he eventually ends up killing people in real life. That's kind of how that devolves. But the movie really displays how all of these fantasies and eventually delusions and into, into deeper pathology come from lack, right? Here's a guy who lacks love, lacks power, lacks expression. So the first order of maybe his like psychological defense or his, you know, his, his psychological immune system, if you will, 
fills in some fantasies to balance things out. And this is a bit of a Jungian perspective in that the things we persistently fantasize about are almost like balancing devices to give us hope when reality is showing a lot of lack. And as we mentioned, love, power, and expression are natural and healthy desires, at least in the sense if you want to reduce it to biology, these are things that lead to survival and replication. So our genes have evolved in such a way that they give us these desires, right? Love being an obvious emotional proxy for being passing on your genes. If you are loved by many women intensely, chances are you have many opportunities to spread your seed, if you will. The uh, fantasy of power, or the feeling of power as a proxy for status, status meaning you're probably going to survive better in the group, your children will survive better. Of course, also important to the spreading of genes. And expression too. Expression might seem is more of a human thing, but expression is certainly tied to status and mattering, especially to know that other people are receiving your feelings and thoughts, uh, which is what expression is, is again, a survival thing. It's like proof that you're part, you're connected to a community. It is one of the things that makes uh, cults so enticing or any sort of groups. I mean, tribalism comes in all sorts of ways. And this is, there's a reason why, right? If we're really bonded uh, in a tribe with a common culture or lingo, it gives us a feeling of safety down to like very primal parts of our, of our consciousness or nervous system. So when these desires or these genetic needs or genetic drives aren't met, you know, it's, I mean, it's just like, a, you know, a starving for a certain nutrient, our body goes a little crazy or our, uh, our psyche goes a little crazy of like, okay, we need, we need this thing. Right. And when it's not still not being met, the best thing that our unconscious can do for us is provide us with a fantasy to make us obsessed. And here's where I think, you know, everything we've, I've said so far applies to both men and women, right? Uh, if uh, a woman is really longing for love or partnership, she might fantasize about that. That's what the entire, the entire romance novel industry is about. Actually, a bit of an aside. I, I bought my Kindle that I, I read from from a woman uh, who previously all she read on her Kindle was um, romance novels, uh, and you know she she cleaned it you know she deleted everything um, but she had the Kindle uh, where it still run ads I think you save like twenty bucks if you have it with running ads so for the longest time while I've had this Kindle it showed me ads of romance novels and I could turn it off but I uh, I was just curious I was I mean I was curious to see how books were promoted. But also, I mean, I specifically get romance novel ads. I mean, it's, it's changed a little bit now because I've bought other books, but it was so interesting to me because I've never really looked at romance novels. And it was interesting to see the covers and the taglines. Because, you know, if there's any lens into what women really want, it's basically how these romance novels were, uh, were promoted, right? Uh, you know, some things are obvious, right? Like, uh, you know, uh, high status doctor, former football player, falls in love with small town girl, right? That seems like, okay, that's an obvious and kind of innocent uh, female fantasy, let's say. But then there's some ones where there's like a recurring theme I've seen in a lot of these where it shows women or uh, the tagline has something to do with lots of alpha male brothers. I never thought about this. Like why, why would women be attracted to sets of brothers who are all attractive and powerful and stuff? But then I realized it's, I mean, it's kind of an obvious genetic thing too, right? It's one thing if a given guy is handsome and confident and powerful and smart. Um, but if he has lots of brothers who are also 
handsome and confident, powerful and smart, he probably has really good genes, right? Because all of the, you know, it, it's not like, uh, you know, uh, he got lucky on the genetic dice roll. It's like, oh, all his brothers are like that too. Then our child will, our son will definitely have those traits. But then there was a couple uh, of these romance novels that came up that it's not that I was surprised in the message, but I was surprised at how explicit it was. There was one that um, stood out to me. Uh, it was called uh, The Brutal Prince. And if you're a woman who reads romance novels, maybe you, you know this already. But this is all news to me that there are actual, there's a whole genre of romance novels where they're called love to hate or hate to love romances where there's a lot of conflict between or a lot of hate between the the man and the woman but they end up falling in love like and this this one called the brutal prince it was something like uh i mean it's it's called the brutal prince right it was like this guy who was a huge asshole and dangerous and scary but then he eventually falls in love with the protagonist and anyways i just thought that was very interesting of especially i mean i say this for men especially Anyone who is still not sure if women are really attracted to dominance and darkness and aggression to, you know, controlled aggression, you should look at the taglines of some romance novels because it shows what, what women, especially women who are lacking in that, fantasize about. But back to men. When this desire, when these desires are not met, they turn into persistent fantasies. And when they go long enough, you know, just like a dog who is starved to a certain point, even the friendliest dog can become hostile if it just doesn't get its food or, you know, any animal lacking in a nutrient can become warped. The psyche, which evolved to drive us towards survival and replication of our genes, if it goes long enough where it's really starved, uh, starved of love, specifically love of a woman, if you're a straight man, starved of status and power, if you're always being shit on by other people, or starved for expression, no one listens to you, that is where it becomes weird. <laughs> that is where, you know, like when we look at, say, some of these incel manifestos, I I'm forgetting the name of the kid, but the one the one of these uh, school shooter mass, uh, you know, murder-suicide kids who wrote the manifesto, lived in California, I don't really remember, but he's obviously seething in resentment at the society and the world because he was an incel. And that drove him to kill a bunch of people. It's a dark thing. It's a dark thought. But it was also, we can say, and maybe there's more to it than that. Maybe he had some other mental issues. But I would even argue that some of the mental issues are driven by the fact that these basic survival needs are so starved. And whereas you never hear of women doing this, because I think, you know, the, the female nervous system is different. Their bodies are different. Minds are different. Neuroendocrine systems are different. Men, though, are primed for obsession, right? We're, we're kind of wired for having one-tracked obsessive minds, especially when a need isn't being met, which is why you only see these kinds of crimes coming from men. And it is for a simple uh, biological principle that I cover in the prologue of the History of Man podcast, which is uh, Bateman's principle. Sperm is cheap, eggs are expensive. If you are a male and you are not receiving love, power, and expression, you're basically getting weeded out of, your genes are getting weeded out of existence. So even though it's not not rational, and it's certainly not pro-social, for a male who's really not getting these psychological needs met, there's some genetic program in many men that will push them to extreme, sometimes, sometimes super aggressive, antisocial, violent behaviors because there's something in the genetic programs uh, program saying 
let's go for broke. Who cares about everything else? Who cares about being kind or nice or anything? Those are higher order feelings. We need to pass on our genes. And obviously, when we look at these violent crimes, it doesn't really make sense rationally. Right? Obviously, they're not passing on their genes properly, but we can imagine it's kind of like, kind of like any animal put in a very artificial environment. I've told this story before about I uh, I think I have where I loaded too many fish into a fish tank and I just I, I didn't know what I was doing. It was my first time having fish. These very peaceful fish and I had shrimp in there, which were bottom feeding shrimp. There's, they normally ate uh, they normally ate algae and stuff. They were just there to like to scoop up I don't know whatever waste products. But I put too many in a small tank and it made them go crazy. And the shrimp actually ripped the heads off of the, the peaceful fish. It's very sick. I didn't mean to go into this dark uh, thread this early in the in the podcast episode, but this is what happens. And there's something about that, I think, that male men are more prone to. So if we take a step back from the extreme versions of it, when a man is having recurring fantasies, let's say just before becoming all-out delusions, right? Just fantasies of power, fantasies of being loved, fantasies or or of sex which i think is again related to love right it's a lack of uh female validation these are meant as kind of like this part of the psychological immune system to counterbalance the lack in real life by giving the man hope right because certainly i mean by the time it gets into the realm of delusion it's gone a little bit too far but when it's in the realm of fantasy where the guy's just thinking about a certain thing all the time you know, he's thinking about being loved by women that he loves himself. He's thinking about being respected. It just comes up in his mind, maybe appears in his dreams. It can give him hope, right? It can it can give a, a positive, uh, healthy image to strive for, even if his immediate reality doesn't reflect that. And, you know, again, by the time something like, let's say, uh, the love fantasy develops into something like stalking, which obviously is an extreme, and it's a perversion and it's gone too far. It's not healthy to, to stalk a woman by any, any, any means. If we go a couple degrees before it becomes, it goes too far to something like, you know, just a romantic obsession with someone who doesn't like you or what in the, the dating or say the pickup world they call one itis when a, when a guy is, uh, well, now the term is simping where guys just like irrationally obsessed with a woman and doing all these things for her, even though she obviously doesn't like him. Even that, I mean, that I would also say is not is not healthy, but it's also an attempt of the unconscious to give the man hope, right? It's because it's, in these cases, like with the story I opened with, with my acquaintance being obsessed with my female friend, it wasn't that he was really in love with her because he actually never got to know her. He didn't really know her. And I, I've had many crushes, some of which I'll share in this episode where I was like, I had all of these powerful emotions for this woman that maybe didn't even know me or this, you know, a lot of these happened when I was younger. So a girl who didn't know me in school or something, but I became like irrationally in love with her, in love with her. It's not that I was in love with her because I didn't know her. It's that my unconscious needed something to heal the pain or to mitigate the pain of loneliness. And it chose a particular woman to be the representation of that. It's almost like the unconscious casts a real person to be the object of hope for you, right? It's to balance out the pain. They become an idol in a sense. And at the point of one-itis, it's already a delusion, right? Like if you're fantasizing or obsessed with someone who clearly doesn't like you, it is a delusion. But I also want to humanize it a little bit and maybe take the shame away from it 
in recognizing that this is a defense mechanism. It's a way of preventing you from going into straight up despair. Because you take away this experience from most men, or if you prove to him it's an illusion, or, or maybe she rejects him so hard in real life that you know, he, there's no doubt, which I actually think is a good thing. It, it crashes him back to reality. But it puts him to a feeling of despair that maybe he was avoiding by casting this woman as the object of his affection. And I want to stress this point for anyone who's experienced one-itis or maybe having a current obsession with a woman that doesn't like him, or, or any guy who's gone through a breakup or gone through going through a divorce. I, I've helped uh, a bunch of guys through these kinds of situations, be it some form of one-itis, rejection, breakup, divorce kind of thing. And I'll say, and in many of these cases, especially where there was a relationship, right? A, you know, and then they broke up or, or split up in some way. And it seems like, you know, the guy's really missing the good times, which makes sense, right? If you had good times and they're gone, you miss them. And he's really obsessed with getting this woman back and whatever. Besides her not wanting to get back, which is one thing, in many of those situations, it wouldn't even be good for him if they got back together <laughs> because there's a reason why they broke up, right? There's, some, there's something that was not good even for him. I want to stress this, that if you are feeling this way, it's not about the woman. I've seen so many cases like this. It's not about the woman. The obsession with a particular woman is just a representation of the pain, right? It's, it's, it's your mind grasping on to a certain character a character that is a real person that you know, but still a character in your mind as a representation to counterbalance the pain you're feeling, right? And you don't need it. And I think once a guy who's obsessed with maybe anything, but let's just say, use this example of women, of a specific woman, once a guy can really accept and understand it's not about the specific woman, it's just like kind of a mental trick, he can become free of it and start to address the wounds. There's this line in a, in a book by W. Somerset Maugham that always stood out to me. Uh, w. Somerset Maugham, writer from the early 20th century. He wrote a couple books about where the, I mean, I think they're all autobiogra autobiographical where a young man is essentially simping for a woman who doesn't like him <laughs> for a number of years. The one that I read was uh, Of Human Bondage, which is like, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a type of book you don't see anymore, but it was popular back then where it basically tells like the entire life story of a, of a man. And similar to Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, like the guy is just obsessed with this woman who is so mean to him and so like, you know, takes advantage of him, all of these things, right? It's written from his perspective, right? It's really like, you really feel bad for the guy, but then you start to like be mad at him. Like, why are you putting yourself through this crap? Because he like, he goes into debt, uh, spending all his money on her when she's obviously just using him and goes off with other guys and stuff like really, you know, <laughs> hardcore simping to use the modern term. But there's a line in the book that uh, he actually repeats this a few times um, because obviously the main character gets super depressed at, at various moments because this woman he loves doesn't love him. Um, and, and he even goes broke over it. And he, he wrote something that men don't kill themselves over women. They might become super depressed if a woman doesn't love him, but he never kills himself. Men kill themselves over money. Now, I don't know if this is true. I'm, I'm sure there have been cases in, in history where men have committed suicide over, over a woman, let's say. But I thought it was interesting because he, he mentioned it a few times. And in the book, he only contemplates suicide when he's broke. He doesn't contemplate suicide when he has money, but simply the woman doesn't like him. And I think, and I've thought about this a lot because again, I don't know if I agree with it, but I thought it was an interesting way to frame it of like, he was almost, as a writer, it's a fictional book, but he's like, 
highlighting something that I, I think does have some truth to it in that even though in heartbreak his emotions are so are going to into such a deep deep dark place on some level he knows that it's not really the end of the world it's only when he goes broke does he feel like it's the end of the world and i share this only not to say that i necessarily agree with the statement but i think it does highlight something of this idea that uh, of using a person as a proxy for a real emotional experience so let's now go into where this lack comes from, or it's a, a, a good way to understand the wounding itself. And for this, I'll, I'll use the model of attachment theory, which I think is simple and, and uh, useful in this situation. Uh, for a quick refresher, if you're not familiar with attachment theory, it's the idea that the way we relate to our primary caregivers as a child affect how we develop um romantic and or adult attachments later on in life. And if we're lucky, we have a secure parent who raises us to be a secure adult child. And this comes from them acting in resonance with us, right? The parent is the care, you know, is the perimeter setter. The child is within the perimeter. And a, a, a secure relationship is one where the parent is giving just the right amount of attention, not too much, not too little. You know, the example in, uh, Child development is is whether or not the parent is picking the child up at the right moments, right? It's not uh, it's not over coddling the child, but not ignoring the child when the child really needs something. And this idea of resonance is uh, is the best term for it, right? Um, in some of the sexuality episodes, I've brought up the word resonance of like there's like a, a specific. I mean, resonance in physics means when uh, the frequencies of things match. Like if you run your finger on a wine glass at the frequency of the molecules in the glass, it causes the molecules to resonate, which causes the wine glass to sing, right? And this is uh, something I brought up in episodes on sexuality, whereas if you really want to create sensation in an intimate sense setting, you have to have your enough attention on your partner to find the exact type of resonant touch, the speed, the pressure, uh, the location that allows her body to sing or the both of you to sing together in a sense. And the same thing with like with parental attachments, right? But most of us, we did not have perfect parents. No one's really perfect. So some level of insecurity is created. And when the parent isn't perfectly secure, the connection to the child basically becomes not resonant or, or off stroke, if you will, to use a more sexual term, right? Um, if the parent is there too much because they're, you know, they're the helicopter parent, you know, they're overstroking, if you will. They will likely create avoidance in the child because the child is trying to get away. You know, the child is imprinted of like, ah, oh, like mom is there too much. I need to like get away. And I think, you know, if you had a very, if you had an overbearing mother, there's a chance you have some avoidant tendencies, right? Like when someone's coming to you with love, you, you might want to back off because that's just what you got used to taking extra space. And it's often that, you know, if you have an anxious mother who's over mothering you, you become avoidant. And then if you maintain those behaviors, your avoidance leads to an anxious child and this back and forth cycle uh, continues unless you unless someone in the chain works on security. On the flip side, though, uh, understroking uh, can come from, you know, if your parent is avoidant, doesn't give you enough attention, um, the child becomes anxious and starts seeking, you know, uh, overly seeking approval, overly seeking connection, you know, uh, supplicating in status or, or giving up personal needs in order to get some love from the the outside. 
And if you're not perfectly secure, chances are you, you know, all of us have had moments where we're both of these uh, uh, insecure styles, right? Uh, avoidance, you know, if someone's coming at you too hard, you want to pull away. It makes sense. If someone is uh, not giving you what you want, maybe you start reaching for it, right? And some of the delusions we spoke about specifically around love for, you know, from the guy who's simping, let's say, is essentially this latter one where despite the feedback that this is not a source for, of love, right? Let's say the woman who just clearly doesn't like the guy or there's no evidence that, that she likes him, uh, he keeps reaching. He keeps reaching, keeps reaching. And you know, you know, if you look at some more resentful philosophies like that of the red pill community, you know, they're basically train, they're basically a bunch of anxious guys who are trying to overcome their previous anxious behavior by becoming avoidant, right? They, they, they often basically tell uh, to give women less than they give them, basically so that you trigger anxiety in the other, in the other person. Because when we look at things like simping, oneitis, or even, you know, even stalking, delusion, all of these things, it is, they are extreme versions of an anxious man seeking love where it's not going to be given. And, you know, even though I don't, I certainly don't agree with the red pill philosophy of creating anxiety in your woman, I do understand that, especially for a man, there are greater benefits in erring on the side of avoidance than of anxiety. Because, no woman wants to be with a man who's anxious because if she needs to take care of you, as we've spoken about in, in the polarity principle episodes, if the woman has to take care of your feelings, you cannot be taking care of her feelings, which means it's not a good idea for her to get pregnant with your child because you're not going to have the strength to take care of her when she's in that vulnerable state of pregnancy. Which is why, you know, while, you know, no kind of insecurity is beneficial and any kind of insecure relating in a, in a romantic relationship will lead to some dissatisfaction. It is better for a man to err on the side of avoidance because an avoidant man, an anxious woman can still have a sexual, sexually satisfying relationship. There can still be polarity simply because the avoidance is better suited for the, being the perimeter setter. Yeah. An avoidant woman with an anxious man, I mean, it's not going to make her baby making instincts comfortable. That said, a lot of these red pill guys who strongly err on the side of avoidance, you know, they might maintain polarity for a number of years, but a lot of these guys end up getting divorced as the, after a couple of years because, you know, while the woman might be okay, you know, chasing after him for a, for a, from for some time and being anxious, no one wants to be anxious forever. And a lot of these red pill marriages you see, like the guy, they seem to be okay for a few years, but then all of this resentment that has been built up of this woman basically not having her needs met comes out all at once at some point and then she ends up leaving him and he ends up getting more resentful, et cetera, et cetera. So what we want to strive for, obviously, in any any form of close relationship, be it a sexual romantic connection or parental or whatever, is to strive for security, to strive for what is the resonant amount of everything. Am I giving the right amount of attention? Not not trying to exceed it too much because that would cause avoidance to the other person, not to undergive it because that causes resentment or and or anxiety. How can we find the exact right amount? And it comes to one very simple thing. Like you don't need to read a bunch of psychology books. You don't need to, you know, read from dating manuals or or anything, whether it be it uh, or any kind of manual, be it parenting or relationship psychology or anything. It simply comes down to attention. 
when I was more in the sexual education space, this was the only thing that I ever taught, right? When it came to how to touch a woman, let's say. If you pay close enough attention, it'll become clear based on her physical feedback of whether you're using too much pressure or not enough pressure, if she wants to be touched there or not, right? It takes some time to calibrate perhaps to know exactly what a certain feeling means. But if you pay enough attention, you will get that feedback and then you will get information which you can work with. And the same thing is true outside of the bedroom, whether it's, you know, if you're getting kind of this cold and and not good feeling while you're talking, maybe you're talking too much. Or if you feel like, oh, I need to, you know, I, I actually need to say something, maybe you're not talking enough. And that can this can apply to anything, right? And one area that I'm trying to learn how to apply this is that uh, with my baby, I'm a new father. It's been so interesting from an academic perspective. It is not maybe the, the most loving parenting way to frame it or the most uh, enchanted way that you know some new, new parents frame it. But from an academic perspective, I think it's been so fascinating to me watching her nervous system essentially develop. You know, Because when she was born, she just had that circuit one uh, survival consciousness where she cried when she wasn't comfortable, which was a proxy for her survival needs being met. And she was content when not. And now, you know, she's developing other, you know, she's developing social emotions. And at some point, she'll learn how to speak and all that. But just seeing a human being that basically is just the most primitive part of the human nervous system, just the survival thing has been interesting. Because, you know, with crying, for instance, if I'm waiting for her to cry, to tell me what she needs, I've kind of waited too long, right? The crying, you know, and of course, crying is uh, not the most pleasant thing to hear. And I, and I have noticed that, you know, my, my wife is definitely better at tolerating the crying and, and not like sometimes the baby crying really feels like nails in my ears. Um, and, you know, part of that could be from me not being grounded. But I also do think, and I, this is just a, just, a, just a guess, that when you're in a more feminine state, meaning you probably have more oxytocin flowing uh, in your bloodstream, the baby crying is probably just feels more uh, more neutral or maybe even pleasant than uh, than when you're say in like a high testosterone like focus trying to get things done state. At least that's what I've noticed for myself. But anyways, try to meet the try to meet the need before the cry because uh, and my wife has helped me uh, recognize the cues that if we really pay attention to her, she kind of lets us know what she needs many minutes before she cries. Not not always, but but often, right? Like she'll do certain things, make certain sounds when she's about to get hungry. Uh, she'll make certain, like she ends up like talking like fast gibberish right before she cries when she's tired. So I've been trying to notice these cues. And the reason why I'm sharing all of this uh, is that all human beings, all adults, even though we don't, we're not, we don't act this simply where we just cry when we're not content and then smile. When we're, I mean, it's, we're not that simple, right? Because we have more complex emotions than babies have, than infants have. We have, uh, you know, we have a, a thinking rational brain that mitigates all our behaviors. But deep down inside, we still have this baby mechanism. We still have this very simple uh, survival circuit, circuit one, according to Timothy Leary's model of things. And even though we don't express like a baby, it still affects our experience. You know, one relational example is that actually, I mean, it helped me recognize also that like my wife, who is under various uh, physiological stress, uh, being the primary caretaker of the baby, she's, 
expending a lot of energy breastfeeding and then being with the baby at night and all that stuff. Something that throws off her mood a lot are physiological things, right? Like just not having enough calories makes her hangry or obviously not sleeping makes her grumpy and things like that. But I've also recognized that if I can, in a sense, see the infant inside of her, see the circuit one inside of her, I can see that she does also give cues when she's about to get upset. And as the, you know, as the head of the household, as the setter of the perimeter of our family, it is, it is on me to try to recognize these cues and meet the needs before it leads to crying, which, which in her case is not necessarily literal, literal crying, but some sort of like unpleasant emotional expression that if I have, a, if I pay enough attention, I can in many cases prevent, right? I, you know, whatever, whatever the cue is. And I think in a relational setting, one of the big challenges for most men is recognizing that women, their primary form of communication, especially in an intimate relationship, is not their words, right? Like I tease my wife about this all the time, but, you know, if I ask her how she's doing or how she's feeling and she says, I'm fine, (laughs) but, but she has like that blank stare in her eyes. I'd be a fool to to take her words literally. Not to say that I, you know, I don't still sometimes fall for that trap, but I'd actually just be it just if I thought that her words were the real representation of how she's feeling, that's just bad modeling on my end. Or that that's actually delusional on my end. Whereas I I know to look for different cues. One of the reasons why I'm sharing all of this is that it's often easier to recognize this about other people, whether it's a baby or your partner or some other person, whoever. But to recognize it about ourselves, especially in the moments that we feel not good, is a little bit more challenging. Because there's there's this common idea in personal development of being your own parent, of essentially essentially what we're doing in this episode, which is filling in all the wounds that ideally would have been healed or prevented by your, your parent when you were a child. But, you know, your parents weren't perfect or whatever the case was, it, it just didn't happen. And the best thing you can do for yourself now is to fill in those gaps. And the best thing you can do for anyone you want to be close to, be it a romantic partner or women in general, or if you have children or if you have employees or colleagues or anything, the best thing you can do for anyone you're close to is also heal your wounds, right? Because as we pointed out in the the way attachment theory works, is if you're giving your attention, if you're in some way relating to someone from an insecure state, you're triggering insecurity in them, especially if you're in the more dominant role, if you're in the, in the caretaker role or the, or if you're the one setting the perimeter and therefore the reality and therefore directing how the group feels, be it a family or a relationship or whatever. You're, if you, you know, and you know, even from a leadership perspective, very simply, if the leader is insecure, the, the culture of the group, the culture of the team is going to be insecure. It's going to pass on to everyone in the group. So the best thing you can do is essentially parent yourself and recognize, okay, I have these wounds. I need to fill them in. I have to, you know, I have to fill them in with sand so that we can walk over it. Oh, and, and one more interesting thing, just uh, last thing about my baby, which is, uh, you know, she's had belly problems. I mean, babies have different things that come up, you know, they have a new body. So things are just, uh, you know, they're uh, figuring it, it's figuring out how to work itself basically. And there was this, uh, a time where, you know, a period where she was having really intense belly pain. And she obviously is new to the world. She didn't know why her insides were hurting. And, you know, she was crying. 
in a way that, of course, very heartbreaking as a parent. You want to you comfort her. And my wife and I were doing our best. And there was a moment where I was wondering, you know, she doesn't really know what's going on. She just knows she's in pain and she's looking up at the two of us. And I did wonder, like, is she going to associate this pain with us? Are we like, is she somehow being classically conditioned to think that we're causing this pain or something like that? Then I realized that's not true because we are, I mean, the pain exists, but we're also offering her comfort with sounds and touch and things like that. And I could see there was a moment where my daughter was looking up to my wife with tears in her eyes. I mean, yeah, I mean, like real pain. I mean, as much pain as, you know, anyway, real pain for this infant. And I could see that in that moment, she was developing extreme attachment to my wife, right? Because my wife was giving the soothing touch and it was like this, you know, for the baby, of course, she doesn't know anything about the world. All she knows is that everything sucks all of a, all of a sudden, like her insides are hurting. But there's this thing outside of her in the shape of her mother who's giving her comfort and is a source of love. And I could see in that moment, she was developing attachment in that moment. Because actually a fun thing I learned about babies, this is the last thing I'm going to say about babies, is uh, when they're really like the first couple months, they don't have any sense of uh, stranger danger, right? They're, they're actually happy to be held by anyone, which is why, uh, you know, to socialize a baby, it's good for them to be held by other people so that as they get older, you know, they, they're a little bit more trusting. They have a more open uh, circuit one, if you will. But attachment only starts to develop a little bit later in these moments where they realize that the world isn't all nice and, and happy and safe, but there are, there are specific sources of safety and love, which come initially in the form of parents. And this was interesting. And this is, you know, even though it's a bit off topic, but uh, from a brainwashing standpoint, you know, it made me, it reminded me of um, the, the show Homeland, where one of the plot lines or one of the main plot lines is that there's an American um, Marine who gets captured by Al-Qaeda and put into their like brainwashing prison camp. And, you know, this, this guy is put through like intense physical and psychological torture. But every so often, he gets these moments of comfort from the Al-Qaeda boss or the guy who, who, you know, is brainwashing him. And, you know, he gets, goes through pain, 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 and then kindness and love. Pain, 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 kindness and love. So, of course, because of these childhood circuits of learning to develop attachment for the one source of comfort, which is supposed to be our parents when we're an infant, but it's still, it's still in our brains, right? It doesn't go away. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't disappear. Like we still have it, even though we develop more complex parts of our nervous system and therefore consciousness. In a brainwashing setting, and this is shown very well in the in the show Homeland, the guy develops this extreme, you know, son to father attachment for the Al Qaeda boss, which is eventually what what has him turn against America and and uh, you know essentially become a terrorist himself because of this situation where he's you know his uh, infant circuitry was basically triggered to create attachment. And I bring all of this up because men especially are very imprintable during the critical time of puberty. And these kinds of particularly persistent boyhood wounds, if they're not addressed during or before puberty, sometimes they can be imprinted in such a way that, you know, basically persist the rest of life unless they're very directly addressed. As we spoke about in, uh, I think I, I mostly cover this in the Prometheus Rising episode, this idea that our, what Leary would call circuit four consciousness, which is where we develop our sense of culture and our sense of social norms. It mainly imprints during puberty. 
And one of the reasons why teenagers are, are known to be rebellious or, you know, challenging of authority is that, I mean, their hormones and their bodies are, are activating in such a way that they are becoming full-fledged adults capable of reproduction and, and full autonomy and, you know, psychological development. But it's also like this special imprinting time where, you know, at least to our tribal ancestors, our, our Paleolithic ancestors, this was a time where the, let's say it was for, for men at least, the boy would start to take on adult man responsibilities, which were very important, critical survival uh, roles for the entire group. So almost every tribe, every tribe that we can see the records of, had some sort of rite of passage where the men of the tribe would put the boy becoming a man through some sort of experience that would do a few things for him. But essentially, imprint him in certain positive ways. It would imprint him with confidence to know that he has these great abilities because he can overcome adversity, but also imprinted him with attachment to the group and respect for the cultural norms of the group, whatever they happen to be, which gives him a sense of belonging, but also trains him to use his new powers given to him by this new surge of testosterone in his body to use his powers for the good of the tribe. Without the rite of passage, without some imprinting like that, he just is like, you know, he had this hammer and he didn't know what to hit, right? You know, if he wasn't giving it, given specific nails, he would just go around hitting stuff, right? And for simple practical reasons, for the group one, so that the boy or the, the young man uses his power for pro-social means, but also for the individual himself, it was very useful to have a clearly imprinted culture. Not that one culture was necessarily better than the others because many cultural norms are arbitrary, but to have a uh, defined culture, to have a defined set of values which can become his guiding principles so he doesn't have to think later on about right and wrong or what to do, which is one of the big things lost to us modern people, modern men. We don't have rites of passage. We're exposed to all cultures, which is beautiful in many ways, but also leaves kind of this confusion of like, well, if I could do anything, if all things are good, well, what do I do? And it takes, it takes a lot of deep thinking to, to answer these questions. Whereas for our Paleolithic ancestors, maybe they didn't know a lot of things and maybe they were closed-minded in certain ways, but they didn't have to spend all of this energy on figuring out these basic things, right? This is why this imprinting during, um, pub is like a, a gateway opens or our consciousness becomes particularly malleable during this time, which is why, again, you, I mean, you see a lot of things specific to adolescence where they, you know, get caught up in revolutionary ideas and stuff, which is actually a positive thing, right? You're expanding and looking for this new, you're looking for how you want your adult consciousness to be molded in some way. This is also why music we listen to in high school or during adolescence is the stuff that tends to really stick with us. Like, like for me, I, I mean, not, not that I still listen to the music I listened to in high school, but it it gives me a, like a certain feeling of significance if I do let's say listen to the Red Hot Chili Peppers uh, randomly. It gives me a feeling of like familiarity and almost like sentimental longing and attachments that I don't get from like the music I listen to now. Right? It's like a certain kind of remembrance of perhaps because I had all those hormones surging through me. I had all these extreme emotions, some some negative ones, actually a lot of negative ones, which is actually part of the reason why I don't listen to 
Like I don't listen to Nirvana anymore, even though I was obsessed with that as a 15 year old because I have all these negative emotional uh, attachments. But this is why things from that part of our life are so, um, so greatly imprinting to us. And this is actually not even a human experience. This is something true for males across various mammal species. And I've brought this up in, in other episodes, I'm sure, about there was an experiment between um, where they're trying to get goats and sheep to mate with each other. Um, and I've gotten this from Chris Ryan. Uh, you know, they, they did some experiment where they put the male goats with the female sheep and vice versa. Um, they let them, they, they kind of got them to mate through puberty. And then they put them back with their own species. So, you know, they, they put the female sheep back with the male sheep and the goats with the goats. The females were, were very adaptable. The females went, actually went back to preferring to mate with their own species, which is what was more, um, uh, genetically viable. But the males, if they learned to mate with a specific, if, if they, if it was a male goat who learned to, um, mate with female sheep through puberty, that was all he liked. Like he became imprinted. And this is something very peculiar or unique to the, to, the male, we could call it mind, uh, but this is true for non-human species too. There's something about imprinting with with male sexuality, but also, but it's also the, specifically the male mind that doesn't seem to be the case with females. Like females seem to be a little bit more plastic. And for uh, a slightly more sad version of that, or a more human version, I think I think Vice did a documentary of this. There's probably been a few um, where. They cover how in certain South American countries, or actually Guatemala is what stands out, the one that I, I think that's what the one, the Vice documentary was on, where there are communities where boys have their first sexual experiences with sheep, like human boys. And they found these communities where, you know, basically all the men, they, they, they grew up having sex with sheep and they actually end up preferring sheep to real women. Because they just, and they actually, and, they, and this is the, the saddest, sad part is that they actually had some sort of like almost emotional, sentimental attachment to the sheep, which is very strange, right? It's another thing, like, you know, it's like weird imprinting. But then for an even closer to home thing, which I've heard from a lot of guys, you know, nowadays porn addiction is uh, something greatly negatively affecting the generations that grew up with internet porn recent generations, and it's probably going to keep getting worse as it becomes even more and more available. I, I, and I've met a lot of guys who say something like this, where they feel a sentimental attachment to pornography in a way that they don't feel for real women. And this is another one of those things where like, look at on the surface, it seems very sad, but I think I'll, I'll speak for myself. Even though I've never been a porn addict, I've definitely, you know, I definitely watched quite a bit through puberty though, before engaging with real women, I can kind of relate to that too. I mean, I can, I can kind of feel like some sort of, you know, if I were to kind of bring myself back into my, say my virgin consciousness, yeah, there was a sentimental attachment. Or maybe if I did see porn that I watched as a 15 year old or younger, you know, I think I started watching at 12. If I did see any of those images or videos, I probably would feel this totally irrational, kind of shameful attachment to these things that made me feel good during a vulnerable time. And I share all of this to really drive home the idea that these kinds of imprints, especially when our mind was particularly plastic, which is certainly the case from birth up until the end of puberty is where we start uh, becoming a little bit hardened, a little bit more elastic. 
not to say we can't change if you're, I mean, I assume if you're listening, you're an adult who maybe wants to change some, some behavioral things, but it is more difficult, right? And I, and I bring this up not, not to make anyone, uh, I certainly don't want to discourage anyone, but it's actually to maybe remove the shame from the feeling of, man, why do I do such and such? Like, why is it that I always, you know, I mean to do this, but I end up doing that. There's a lot of like, uh, I think the way that most people look at it is like, oh, you don't have willpower or you're not disciplined enough or, or, or you're weak minded. And, and maybe those, that's an element in many cases that is a factor at least. But imprinting, these are like, it's essentially like you have, you literally have a program programmed into your operating system. I don't know. I'm using the terms right, but it programmed into you, programmed into the computer that is your, you. And it's, it's, it can be very challenging to override these programs. Not to say that you can't. So in keeping with the theme of some of uh, the heartbreak, uh, simpy stories, there's one in particular that I feel particularly bad about, <laughs> even still. Because like a lot of my delusional heartbreak stories or, or you know, delusional crush uh, longing, you know, they're either, you know, really young and I can, it's been so long and I can look back as, as an innocent crush or there's one I had at 15, which was, uh, you know, a catalyst for growth and therefore net positive. There were ones I had later in life that, uh, or like as a young adult, let's say, where I was actually in a relationship and maybe I felt, you know, there was like a real heartbreak instead of a delusional one. But one that's like kind of in between that I, I still feel uneasy about is about a year after my 15-year-old heartbreak. Afterwards, you know, I became, the pain was so acute that I, it was, it forced me to really make some lifestyle changes, right? Like I, I stopped hanging out with my old group of friends, not that they were bad, but they, it was kind of like, you know, I, I needed to get away from my old environment. I started obsessively lifting weights and reading philosophy and, and I joined the wrestling team and all these things that were all extremely positive things for me. And the following year, I ended up in a, in class with this really pretty girl who is a year younger than me. So unlike people in my grade who all kind of maybe had a, a low impression of me, she, she was a total clean slate. She knew nothing about me. And all she knew that, you know, I had some friends in class. I was on a wrestling team. I seemed really cool. I seemed outwardly confident because I had been really like reading all the social theory books and you know, I was trying really hard. I still had the wounds inside though. And unlike all of my other crushes where, you know, I was either unnoticed or I was getting some sort of indirect rejection or there was like, it was, you know, it was delusional in the sense I was crushing on someone who clearly didn't like me. In this situation, I had a huge crush on this girl who also had a huge crush on me. And in fact, you know, she was, uh, she made it obvious to all, everyone who knew both of us that she really liked me and was basically waiting for me to ask her out. And for some reason, I mean, it's everything that I, it was everything I could have imagined, you know, a year prior when I was like this, you know, getting rejected by this girl in front of the entire school. Like I, this was exactly I me. Mean, I could not have imagined a better occurrence to be experiencing a year later, especially, I mean, specifically regarding this particular boyhood wound of mine around love or affection from women, from girls. But the imprinting in me was so strong of like this of being so used to pining for someone who didn't like me that for some reason I could not bring myself to ask her out even though she made it so obvious. And every day, you know, this went on for months. 
every day she became more and more visibly agitated, like, like, why the hell isn't he asking me out? Like, what's wrong with him? Right. And, you know, it, was, it became like, it became another like embarrassing talk of the town, you know, went through the wire. Like, why doesn't Rowan ask her out? It's so obvious. And, you know, to the, you know, for the longest time, I, I just didn't understand why it's like, is it that my shyness was still not overcome? That was a factor, of course. But there was something I had not addressed the wound yet. I had worked on these outer things, but this wound, this imprint, this imprint of, of like, it was like, even despite the outside world, despite these, this, this positive evidence that existed, my insides were still recreating what I was used to. I was somehow created a situation where I was longing for someone I could not have, even though she, even though I, in reality, I always say I could have. And this one, if I'm honest, it still causes me pain, not because I care about this particular person, um, but it was just like, man, exactly what I wanted was there and I couldn't bring myself to have it. And, and I, and I had to share this particular story because I meet a lot of guys in similar situations where the thing they want is available. And like, you know, as, as with dating stuff, I've met a lot of guys. I've coached a lot of guys who outwardly have everything going on, whatever the outward thing is, right? They have the cool job or they are good looking enough. They get matches on Tinder, but things just don't go for them for some reason. And they don't know why often. But then when I speak to these guys and we, we explore stuff, very often what comes up is a wound, right? It's an expectation that things have to not be good, probably because of imprinting they had in adolescence or prior. Things have to not be good. They can't have what they want. So they, it's like almost like they filter reality to find the evidence for what their unconscious assumes is true, which is, oh, women don't like me. And there's many, there's many, you know, and I've been focusing on this uh, area of love in this, uh, in this episode because that's where I, I probably have the most charged stories. But it applies to other things too, right? To power, to uh, expressing yourself so that people can listen, right? It's like having this unconscious assumption or what some would call a limiting belief ends up affecting real reality because you, you, you filter because of these imprints. So this is one strong argument for not over-prioritizing outward things uh, for the in inward things. You have to address these boyhood wounds Otherwise, they will find their way out in some form to sabotage your reality, even if everything seems to be taken care of on the outside, especially in moments where things really count, right? In those, you know, I call them the critical moments or archetypal moments where you can't necessarily stop and think. You always end up reverting to how your unconscious believes life should be. And that's main reason why my uh, archetype program focuses so much on introspection and addressing these things that are beneath the surface because it's, you know, in a dating setting, it's not enough to just work on these outward skills. Actually, sometimes if you really deal with the inside stuff, you don't need to worry so much about the outside stuff because you'll more naturally develop the outward traits or take the outward behaviors that lead to the thing that your self-concept believes should be true. So, of course, the question is now, how do you heal the boyhood wound? How do you heal the longing of the inner child or however you want to frame it? And I do have one last story that starts embarrassing but ends with redemption. I mean, I've, I've had many situations through my life where I had some irrational crush. There was one, uh, it's the last one I'll tell, 
uh, is is one from 12 years old. Uh, another one of those that you know wasn't particularly significant in in that it was just like all the other ones where I had this crazy crush on a girl in my class who didn't I mean she knew who I was but didn't we didn't really interact so it was in the realm of delusion let's say but also driven you know as many ones from middle school into high school I guess maybe fueled by puberty you know came with a lot of emotional um, inspiration. Even though I barely ever spoke to this girl, I wrote her poetry at home. I wrote music for her. I became very much like a troubadour's longing or the, the knight who, the medieval knight who would swear his heart to uh, a princess he could never have. It had that feeling. But this one did come with redemption because maybe 12 years later or so, uh, we still had some mutual friends. We reconnected and at this point in my life, I had worked on myself. I had healed definitely aspects of this kind of boyhood wound. At least I was more confident, let's say. More confident and had feelings of deservingness, which I didn't have uh, in previous years. And she and I ended up in in an intimate experience. And it was interesting because aside from, you know, the obvious pleasure and fun that comes with something like that, it came with a lot of emotional charge for me because in the act, all I could think about or largely was on my mind was the pain I felt when I was 12 and I was madly in love with her, right? I mean, she was, I mean, back then she was also a girl. Now she was a grown woman. It was, we were barely the same people. It was basically two different people, but with, uh, with maybe some overlap of history. My, I mean, honestly, I wasn't that present because I, I was just feeling my pain from childhood. And, you know, there was a moment, if I'm honest, and this is maybe the root of male resentment, and again, we could point at the red pill community, that because I had felt so much pain at that time, and I had assigned, I had I basically cast her as like the, the counterbalance to the pain I was feeling. There was an association there. And of course, it wasn't, again, it wasn't that she was causing the pain. It was that I was already lonely and felt, you know, I just, I didn't feel good. I wasn't happy. And I had, you know, attached her to those feelings. There was some part of me that felt a little bit of contempt for her. <laughs> not, not that it was in any way actually her fault at all. In fact, she gave me hope, or, you know, at the time that I was down in some deluded way. But I felt, I did feel a little bit of contempt. And there was like a, a dominance and selfishness that came into me at, at first. But as I dug a little bit deeper, you know, as, or as, as the feeling passed through me uh, a little bit deeper, I, I did recognize the obvious truth that anytime you feel uh, great aggression or maybe contempt or, uh, yeah, let's just say aggression or resentment, it is trying to defend a more vulnerable part of you. And of course, underneath that was the, was the childhood pain, this great desire for connection and love of the female, love of a woman or a girl at that time. And in that moment, I had to acknowledge the fact that even though I had maybe developed, you know, I had done all this work on myself and I had changed and my character was different and I was confident with women at this point, I still had that boyhood wound. I was still carrying that boyhood wound. I, I shared this with certain close friends who knew me then and knew me now and I did, I'd said it in a way less vulnerable way, you know, talking to, <laughs> talking to my friends more casually. It's like I reached out into the past and high fived my 12 year old self 
which is, yeah, it's a little bit of a bro-y way to put it. But the truth was, I was really feeling my childhood pain and I did get really emotional. I didn't really show it, which maybe, yeah, we could say I should have or whatever, but I didn't. But I did get really emotional inside because I, you know, in recognizing the acute pain I felt back then, I did feel like I completed a cycle. Even though it really had nothing to do with this woman, you know, in, in actuality, the representation then and now, it felt like completing a cycle. And I felt like I did reach back into the past. And this part of myself that I was still carrying, this wounded, in pain 12-year-old, I did feel like I went back to him and said, don't worry, things get better. And it was interesting because, and I didn't, you know, this was, this was all like flash things in my mind during an intimate experience. So this wasn't like I was sitting down and thinking really deeply or consciously. But later on, as I was driving home, I thought about it more. And I, and I actually, I have this memory now of being a depressed 12 year old, a wounded 12 year old, wishing, you know, cause this is kind of a, common fantasy plot idea, like wishing that I myself from the future would come back to the past and tell me what to do, right? And I've actually had this fantasy at different times in my life. It's like, I wish future me who has things figured out would come back. But in a way, we can do this, right? Maybe not literally, not literally traveling back in time and talking to our past self. But if we take the right actions in our present, there will be a point that we can at least address internally the wounded past self and say, hey, don't worry, things get better. Because with this situation, you know, I keep telling all these like simping stories or whatever. It's not really about the sex. It's not really about the woman. These are drives, you know, this instinctually driven drives. You know, and, and neither is porn addiction is really, it's not really about sex either. It's about addressing these lacks that become wounds and sometimes become delusions that can become deeply embedded in the male psyche. So we're going to end this episode with a process. It's a simple process, as I think all effective solutions are. It does not mean it's easy. A process for healing the boyhood wound. And everything in this episode leading up to this is to provide a basis of understanding because it's not like you can just check things off on a list, right? Especially when it comes to internal processes. It's very easy to skip over what's really going on if, you, if you're just looking at outward things. So, so the first is to recognize, one, that every fantasy is meaningful. I've had a somewhat secret uh, motive with this episode. I mean, not really secret, but some other general motive, which is to, to destigmatize delusions, to take away the shame, especially for, for a guy who may be you know, delusions, but really on any unwanted behavior. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I stress the whole understanding of imprints, because certainly, as we've spoken about shame in many episodes, if you feel ashamed about some unwanted behavior, it's only going to persist and perhaps pervert and become worse, maybe get to the level of delusion if you're really shaming yourself, which means you're separating parts of your psyche, separating parts of your identity. It's, of course, never good. I've wanted to, I mean, even, even like these extreme unpleasant male behaviors, like stalking, like a lot of the things incels do that may seem misogynistic or hateful or antisocial or, or just plain deluded. I've wanted to at least make it more human because while that is an extreme subsection of people, many men carry the germs of those kinds of behaviors and thoughts in them. 
and they come out in less extreme ways. But, you know, whether it's unwanted behavior in relationships, be it anxious or avoidance, they often come from the same place, maybe always come from the same kinds of woundings. And I certainly want to take at least take away the shame from anybody uh, in this situation, whether it's shaming yourself or, you know, maybe, maybe you're a woman listening to this and you've been shaming the man in your life when it would be helpful for both of you to recognize that there's a wound involved. So this first step of the process is to, to recognize this, to recognize it and being that it's a wound, being that all of these fantasies and it's, it's extremely difficult to look at your own thoughts and recognize it's a delusion. And especially if someone tells you you're deluded, there's some part of everyone some part of our thoughts that want to protect themselves, our thoughts even want to protect themselves, if you want to personify a thought. So when someone says, oh, that's a delusional thought, it's very easy to try to defend it. So it's hard. So I don't know. I don't know if me uh, painting these things uh, in illuminating this way in a podcast form is, is easier because I'm not talking to you directly, but maybe I am. Anyways, these fantasies, these delusions, they lead to wounds or they, they come from wounds rather. And of course, there's a pain in a wound. Otherwise, we wouldn't call it a wound. And in recognizing that these drives all have meaning, in determining the meaning and pointing to the wound, this first piece is to learn how to embrace the pain, which means recognizing the hard, hard truth, right? When I, when I meet a guy who's gone through a breakup recently or hard rejection or a divorce, which not only comes with emotional pains, but material ones, the first thing we have to do is recognize the hardest, harshest truths of the situation. Because only then can you have a far, a firm, solid basis for a new reality to be created, one that's uh, more in line with the actual world. Because as, as I mentioned with the, the chicken pox idea early in this episode, these vulnerabilities exist in all of us. If you're lucky, you'll address the wound early, right? It'll be open and then it'll be closed and healed soon enough. Like when we see a guy who doesn't have any of these problems, who seems to be just like a a naturally super secure person. It's not that he never had the wound. It's that he just addressed it so early in life that it never created any lasting imprints. Like um, one of my close friends that I grew up with who has always seemed super secure with, with women, with career, with, you know, uh, he just, the things that I've had to learn, they always have seemed obvious to him, at least when it comes to like, general life wisdom. In fact, he doesn't even think about it, right? He doesn't put it into words because like, if I come up with, if I came up with a realization in my growth, he's like, oh yeah, well, yeah, isn't that obvious? And when I look at him, it's not that, you know, maybe he had some positive upbringing pieces, uh, positive attributes he's had, but I, I've known him for a long time. I've known him since early childhood. And I can actually look back, uh, you know, from my perspective and see he got, I mean, he, he was bullied really young and he overcame that. And he had some heartaches. Actually, you know, he was really popular in high school with the ladies, this friend of mine. But, I, and, you know, he just seemed to be super at ease in a way that other guys, other guys our age just weren't at ease with women. But I remember in middle school, he had like a really intense, I mean, he, he, to use the term, he, he really simped hard for this girl. She kind of publicly rejected him, but he recovered very quickly. And as far as I can tell, he never really was insecure with women again. Right. It's like he kind of just like he recognized in himself the resilience. And I, I spoke about this in a different context with uh, with Mac Lethal when he was on the podcast a couple episodes ago, like the idea of the father who realizes he's failed, 
uh, at least failed his family. So he goes out for the, for a pack of cigarettes, and never comes back. You know, it's, it's, uh, showing like the guy who thinks he cannot recover. Like he thinks he lost, so he can't recover. As opposed to the guy who's recognized the resilience of like, oh, and then, you know, this maybe comes from an imprinting of, I felt the pain and then I didn't feel the pain shortly afterwards. And therefore I'm not afraid anymore. Like the whole Wolverine idea of like, okay, I can recover really quickly. Therefore, I don't have to be worried about anything. Therefore, I don't have to have any insecurities. And I can really just be myself. And that can be loved and respected and expressed with no problem. And if you have these adults, you know, if, if you made it to adulthood and you have these wounds, unfortunately, you weren't lucky enough to uh, have dealt with the chicken pox early enough in life. Well, the only way to deal with it is to embrace the pain first. If you try to numb it out by with comforts, with uh, positive thinking to like just pat yourself on the back or always look at the bright side and or like, you know, look for a model of reality. I mean, this more than red pill, the opposite really pisses me off of like models that teach young men to coddle themselves or to make excuses for shortcomings and like, oh, you know, you're special no matter what. Like, no, that's not reality. That's just not reality. And that leads to so much more pain because that's a that's a, an incorrect model of how things work. Instead, you have to recognize, okay, this girl didn't like you because you're not likable. Or, you know, your wife left you because you, you didn't uh, embody certain respectable traits or whatever the case is, right? Whatever the harsh truth is, it has to be addressed first. Because when you do address it, that allows it to become a catalyst for change. And looking at persistent fantasies and recognizing that it represents a wound underneath, you can find ways to complete it. Right now, with a crush on a woman like the one I just mentioned where, okay, I, I, I was lucky enough to have red, uh, get redemption there where I was able to be intimate with a woman who I had a crush on from childhood. And... It did, I'm not going to lie, it did feel like a very healing moment. And if I could, if that, this was more readily available, I would say go for it, right? If I could, if I'm honest, this maybe sounds crude, but if I could sleep with every woman who I ever was heartbroken about, I probably would feel a little bit more complete. But it's not obviously a healthy pursuit to, to even try. And I could even think that, you know, the cringe story that I opened with about my acquaintance who's still like deludedly chasing this woman four years later or, or pining or, you know, somehow longing for this woman. I can only imagine that this is some attempt of his unconscious to maybe do the same thing, even though reality doesn't give any evidence that it's possible. But it's instead to find a real other way to satisfy the wound. And it's important to recognize what the wound actually is because say the you know, I think it's a natural thing for a man with pains or resentment towards women to seek porn or loneliness seeks porn, but obviously porn doesn't actually do it, right? Porn uh, might have the the toppings that the the need is, like it seems like it's going to give connection or it titillates the the pleasure centers that one would associate with sex with women, but it doesn't actually have any of the nutrients, right? It's empty calories, ends up feeling shitty, you know, it doesn't lead to anything. And the same goes for, you know, the maybe the sex addict who who's like constantly trying to pick up women and have sex because, you know, while that maybe is a step in the right direction from porn, still doesn't lead to fulfillment, right? Because again, the wound wasn't that you're horny, right? That's never the case, right? The, with a guy longing for women is not that the wound is, oh, I'm horny, I'm not satisfied. Because actually, 
porn can deal with that, right? Or, or prostitutes can deal with that or getting a, a, a rub and tug happy ending can deal with that. The wound is not that. The wound is a lack of love and affection from women, right? It's that emotional validation, which is tied to our sexual circuitry. Uh, if like, okay, when a woman actually loves you, she actually wants to have your child, right? That's the, that's the deepest rooted part of it. In, in the book that I mentioned by uh, Somerset Mom of Human Bondage, the redemption he finally gets is not, because he actually does get with the, the woman later, but it's not fulfilling. It's, it's actually, it doesn't work for him. The redemption he actually gets is at the end of the book, he gets with a woman who maybe doesn't like send him through emotional roller coasters, but she really loves him and she's really kind to him. And at that moment, he feels at peace. At that moment, he's like, ah, I mean, there's some recognition of, ah, okay, this journey is over. And that's, I mean, that's where the book ends. For an example, you know, again, I've focused on the love need of the three, uh, three longings. But another example of this relevant to this podcast, actually kind of a, a, where this uh, podcast has come from, is in, in addition to my longing for the affection of, uh, of the woman through my life, especially young life, is I also had a very strong need for uh, um, expression, uh, as many people do, right? There's the common fantasy of imagining you're being uh, interviewed by a talk show host. I didn't realize how common it was until somewhat recently, but I ha I've had it from, I, I can remember back to age seven, listening to my parents, listen to uh, watch uh, Jay Leno in the next room. And because I was so shy, I had all these things I wanted to say that I didn't say, throughout the day, I would probably, you know, I don't remember what my bedtime was probably 8.30. I must have stayed up two plus, oh, actually, no, I stayed up for the entirety of the Tonight Show. So I was probably to like midnight or, or past that, imagining myself talking to Jay Leno. And it wasn't that he was even saying anything. It was just like everything that I wanted to say, every idea I had, every story I wanted to tell, it all came out in my head. And this persisted from age seven or maybe earlier up until... I started listening to Joe Rogan a few years ago, maybe five years ago, which actually spurred me to want to make this podcast because at the time I was taking a break from personal development. It's after I left One Taste. I was driving a cab. Someone recommended uh, I listen to Joe Rogan. They thought I would listen to so it. I had a lot of, I had a lot of downtime and I always found myself listening to Joe Rogan interviews. Then I would, you know, when I didn't have a passenger, I'd hit pause and I would end up talking out loud in the car, you know, you know, Joe would say something, his guest would say something, and I would hit pause and I would say my opinion, which is again, kind of a sad thing. You know, here I was talking to myself in a car uh, or talking to these two people in, 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 uh, in my head. Again, it's kind of cute for a seven-year-old to do it. It's kind of sad for an adult to do it. I do know that a lot of men do this though, right? And maybe not all with Joe Rogan, but a lot of people, right? If, and it just makes sense. If you feel like you have words to say that people haven't heard, it makes sense to have this natural fantasy of saying it to a person that you listen to yourself. And, and actually, you know, so that's what started, uh, that's what inspired me to start my own podcast. And for a while that I was just interviewing people. And then after a while, I realized I don't actually always get to say what I want to say because I'm interviewing another person. It's a two-way conversation. I can't just blab. <laughs> so that's why I started doing these solo podcasts where I was like, oh man, I have a lot of things I want to share and I can't wait for someone to ask me them. I should just say them. So uh, my one little embarrassment, my, my last little embarrassing thing is 
a lot of it's it's less now because I have this outlet of expression, which is my podcast now. But certainly the first many solo episodes I I did, which started I think in 2019, they actually came about because I I was maybe listening to Joe Rogan or I was just talking to Joe Rogan in my head. I was like, hey, I should actually tell this story and share this idea, and that and that somehow spurred um, a solo podcast, which is more of my main thing these days. And this is all to say that in this step two. If you, after you've determined the meaning and embraced the pain and recognized the wound, step two is finding an outlet that could actually satisfy the itch because I don't so much have that fantasy anymore, which to, you know, talking to Joe Rogan or Jay Leto in my head. And I think it's because I have actually found an, you know, a way to share these ideas, say with you, right? And it's a, it's a thing that I hope, hope is useful to listeners. Uh, you know, it does, it, it has become my career. But if I'm really honest, a big part of the impetus is not anything to do with career or ambition, is not anything to do with even helping people, which I, if I'm really honest, right? Of course, I like those two things. But it's like there's some part of me that feels like I have to get it out. Otherwise, I'll end up talking to Joe Rogan in my head too much, right? So it's like something I have to do. And I think the same idea can apply to a longing for a woman or women in general or sex or power. We haven't spoken about power too much. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually do another episode speaking more specifically on power and expression. But as far as this boyhood wound stuff, you know, the object of your delusion, let's say, or the object of your fantasy is not the only way to solve the wound, right? Whether it's a woman or like, you know, there's, even though I would love to be on Joe Rogan, and I think that's within the realm of possibilities, it's not about being on Joe Rogan. It's that that's just what, where my mind goes to give me an image to solve this need that I have or to solve this desire coming from my subconscious, right, of expression. And there's other ways to solve that uh, or to uh, to heal that wound or to, to allow it to be so that it doesn't fester and become, and the fantasy doesn't become like some weird thing uh, later. And I would imagine, you know, I, I've never gotten to the point of wanting to say stalk a woman or stalk a person, but, you know, I would guess that that kind of extreme behavior is simply what happens when the fantasy or the wound is left open so long that the fantasy becomes something weirder. Because the fantasy itself only comes about when the wound is left open enough, open long enough to be a wound rather than just a pain. And finally, the third part of this process is to do that thing. Whatever you've figured out or, or, or explore, explored as a, as a possible completion of the wound, uh, satisfaction of that deep subconscious longing, be it love, power, expression, do it enough till you can genuinely say to your past self, the wounded boy in you, the wounded child, don't worry, it gets better in the future. Right, and that's that's the reason why I shared the redemption story. It wasn't about sleeping with a, a woman f- from my past, you know. Although for for men who've experienced that, I think it can be a very emotional completion, you know, especially someone you've longed for or someone you pel- felt uh, less than or or felt some sort of wound. But that's not the point, right? It's about doing the things now that can allow you to eventually say to your past self, "Don't worry, things get better." And this is not about, you know, and if honestly, if you're in a point right now where 
you don't feel like you can say that to yourself or maybe you're in the depths of the wound right now and you can't say that to yourself, just know that in this present moment, there are still things you can do that in the near future, you can say to yourself, don't worry, things get better. And I, you know, short of actually getting the object of your fantasy, which I mean, one thing I forgot to say about that that story, even though it was great to have redemption, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like my fantasies. I mean, as a 12-year-old, I didn't, I didn't have those kinds of fantasies, really. But, you know, it, things like that have, you know, come up in my mind. It's like, it's not, you know, it's not really about the, you know, it's not, a, it's not fulfilling in the way you would think of like, oh, yes, I got this thing that I was coveting. It, it's more like this thing doesn't hurt anymore. And... Again, it's not about the object of your fantasy, be it a woman or be it a certain kind of status or, you know, the, the, the power fantasy that I've mentioned that seems to be very common um, in the modern days, men who are not even interested in sports sometimes, who have the, the fantasy of being an MMA fighter. Like, there's nothing more archetypally masculine as far as the power dynamic of winning a fight with someone. You know, it's just another thing that I hear from men a lot. It usually comes down to uh, not feeling like you're getting enough respect in life, obviously, it's not about literally becoming an MMA fighter, right? Especially, you know, I've heard this from guys who don't even like MMA. They still daydream about being an MMA fighter. Like that, that obviously, it's not about being an MMA fighter or whatever it is. Not to say that those pursuits can't help if they have, are a real interest, but it's about finding the thing that solves the wound, right? Because like other, you know, power fantasies that I've had, and I've spoken about this in, in some episodes regarding anger. Are like uh, you know the Fight Club fantasy of like being part of, yeah being a part of a Fight Club right There's something appealing about that, especially for a, a man who's not getting out enough aggression or maybe not having enough brotherhood in his life. There's these extreme you know I don't I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but there was a time where I, I really genuinely wanted to join the Hell's Angels, which is kind of a ridiculous thing uh, given who I am. But uh, I don't know I was watching too much Sons of Anarchy and I was really longing for like being in like a group of men who I respected, who did cool, badass things and, and were not subject to the betaization of society, you know? Anyways, again, it's not about the fantasy. It's about satisfying the wound beneath the fantasy. And the only way I know, the only way to satisfy the wound, or to, the only way to have it go away and to have it not affect your behavior, to basically fix the, the negative imprint from whatever whatever emotional time in your life is to take actions now that solve the need in beneath. And if it's an old wound, it's going to take a lot of action, right? It's going to take a lot of um, that. And this one last really important point is that when I when I say I want to de-shame these uh, tendencies or imprints or, or longings or fantasies or even delusion, it's not just to be clear. It's not that by de-shaming I mean tolerate. Right. That, that, I mean, I think there's a lot of confusion in modern culture where in an attempt to relieve people of shame, they say, well, everything is okay. Right. Like one example would be the body positivity stuff. Right. I'm all for body positivity in that, like, I don't want anyone to feel ashamed of how they look or how they are. But that doesn't mean that if you're 50 pounds overweight, you can say that you're healthy and you are healthy. Right. Like you can love your body. You can love who you are. And you can improve the things that are things that you shouldn't tolerate or the things that tolerating will not lead to happiness, right? It's in treating it like an ailment, which maybe is not a, maybe not the most PC thing nowadays, but
but like it is an ailment, right? Like if you if you have a stalking tendency or if you are overly fantasizing about a particular person or a situation, you can kind of treat it like, uh, oh, you have uh, a fatty liver and there's some lifestyle changes you can make and you should make to heal it, right? It's not it's not a death sentence. It's not something to be accepted. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm you know I just have liver problems. You know, you can actually fix that. I mean, with some lifestyle changes. It's a problem you can address because it is fixable, right? It's not a wound you have to live with. It's not a wound that you have to proclaim or should proclaim is not actually a wound. No, it is a wound. It is a problem. And it's something that you can do something about. All of these internal issues, these inner game issues, these uh, subconscious problems, if you will, some people like to ignore them or pretend like they're not there because they are abstract, right? It's not like a, it's not like scarring in your liver that you could observe. So on the one hand, some people like to just ignore them. But of course, you know, if you've gotten this far, if you care to listen to this podcast, you probably don't believe that anymore or you don't believe that. You recognize that they are things that are important. But then some people get trapped into thinking like, oh, well, I have this because it's abstract and it's hard to address like, oh, there's nothing I can do about it. That's not true either, right? Actually, maybe more than certain physical ailments, these kinds of subconscious problems definitely can be fixed. They can definitely, you can address this wound if you pay attention to it and you, you take the steps that, uh, that will change it, right? Like when I, when I speak to a guy who, again, is going through one of these pains, like rejection, heartache, heartbreak, divorce, whatever, you know, I've said some version of like, okay, now is the time to go to war, right? You've experienced this, uh, you know, you've experienced this, uh, extreme pain. You're experiencing this pain. Use it. This is your great opportunity because actually one of the worst things is the guy who's able to make his life comfortable enough that he can kind of skate by while maintaining the wound. There's a high probability that it'll blow up in his face, whether it's you know a relational issue or some other self-sabotage, or just as bad, he goes the rest of his life living a kind of comfortable, mediocre existence, which is also not, I don't think, the way anyone wants to look at look back at their life on their deathbed. So feel the pain, don't numb it, find the outlet that would heal the wound and keep hitting it. I mean, keep keep doing that thing until you can genuinely say to your past self, hey, don't worry. I know it hurts in this moment, but things get better in the future. I hope this episode was useful. If you want to dive a little more deeply into your unconscious in a more hands-on way, you might want to check out my Mask and Archetype Challenge. It's full of uh, Jungian psychology-based exercises to help you address these kinds of things exactly, the inner child, etc. And uh, it also comes with a free coaching session with me. So if you want to work with me directly, it's the most cost-effective way to have a conversation with me. That's at MasculineArchetypeChallenge.com. And lastly, if you like the academic side of all of this stuff when it comes to male psychology, you might want to check out the History of Man podcast. It's another project I have that I'm very proud of. Um, you can search for History of Man Ruan on a podcasting app or go to historyofman.substack.com. Goodbye.